This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Van Miller. Aging grid infrastructure is struggling to cope under the strain of extreme weather. It's something we've looked at a lot on the show. As we diversify our energy mix, we're needing new ways of managing the power. We were joined on the show by Josh Chappell, head of engineering at Mesa, an initiative from Google's Sidewalk Labs. Mesa uses data and AI to drive efficiencies across the grid. Today, we're plugging the interchange back into the grid and again looking at the use cases for AI in modern energy infrastructure. Using automation to better predict energy use and manage it is key to building resilience. David Miller is VP of Business Development at Gridmatic, an AI-powered energy provider. How can AI forecast energy usage, pricing, and trading? Let's find out. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David. Obviously, a lot of news stories, a lot going on with AI, developing technology, different applications across the board. Why do you think AI is kind of needed in the energy space and what can it do? Yeah, I mean, I think at a high level, everyone listening to the podcast, I think, is familiar with the explosion in AI applications like ChatGPT and, and Dolly. And underpinning all of these technologies are really a, a set of innovative mathematical techniques to make better predictions. With ChatGPT, concretely, it's predicting what are the best set of text characters to respond to user inputs. And so similarly, any task that requires prediction is one that potentially is a good fit for AI. And there are a lot of cases that predictions matter a lot. And in the energy transition, electricity grid really requires good predictions to run reliably and efficiently. Where there used to be more stable load, predictable supply, now load is more variable due to increased weather volatility, and more importantly, big variability in renewable generation supply, which makes grid balancing a challenge. And so AI can enable better predictions in these areas, which helps for balancing the grid and supporting the energy transition. How specifically can this address some of the load factors on the grid, some of the weather disruptions? So what we're doing and, and what AI can do is to predict supply and demand really at the nodal level on the grid and at very granular time intervals. The level of granularity captures kind of the interactions missed in other types of forecasting models. The traditional way of, of doing forecasting is based on power flow modeling, which is uh, a physics-based model of grid. It's where you model all the, the poles and wires, uh, and that's what the grid operator is using to run its market dispatch and create the locational prices in the grid. And so it's no surprise that historically market participants have tried to replicate this approach, the grid operator's approach, and done power flow modeling as well. But the problem is that no one has that full set of data other than the grid operator, and the power flow models tend to be very finely tuned, so small variations can lead to big misses in outputs. And as a result, the models are, are most useful for things that are general scenarios or, or where there's like kind of averages across longer time periods, and that's quite helpful for that type of modeling. Whereas in contrast, the AI-based modeling can really capture dynamic interactions, constraints, real-time changes. It does a better job of predicting granular supply and demand on the grid, and it it's continues to learn from data over time making it improve predictions over time, which means it, it can do well in handling changes in the market when that happens. As AI develops, how challenging is the code writing for this type of stuff? It's a constantly innovating field, right? So the, the folks, a lot of times on the recruiting side, on the engineering side, what we're looking for academic papers that folks are publishing because it's really like the cutting edge of the research that is leading to the improvements in performance. That's what makes it a really exciting space. So there's a combination of skills that's required to develop software in this area. It's really the research side, which tends to be more math oriented, 
And then the implementation side, which requires a strong computer science or software engineering background and really marrying those things together. It's where a lot of, a lot of effort is going into across industries these days. Let's break it down into the different areas in terms of demand as well as supply. So you mentioned that there's a number of factors that aren't being evaluated right now that the AI can help look at. On the demand side, what are some of those factors that really can help drive the energy efficiency and optimized grid that maybe aren't being factored in today? Yeah, I mean, so for consumers, I'd say there's a few things. Some customers have flexibility in their band. And so forecasting can help them both reduce power bills and also kind of generate more revenue, providing services back to the grid. So as an example, like with better electricity price predictions, a fleet EV charging station could make better decisions about minimizing energy costs by charging at the right time while still meeting the specific operational constraints, the requirements of its fleet. It works best tackling the, the opportunities really in markets where we can get connection to that direct wholesale, either market price or, or market services through a demand response program. Having customers get direct accessibility to that uh, sort of the wholesale market prices, which are really reflecting the underlying supply and demand and scarcity on the grid is a big key in our minds. And so as an example, with forecasting energy and ancillary services, other companies might be getting more confident in how they can participate in demand response programs to get more financial incentive to curtail when the grid operator needs support, but still have the confidence to know that like it's not going to disrupt their operations in a way that, that can be debilitating. There's a variety of these types of demand response programs that enable wholesale market participation. They have different rules around response times and curtailment durations. The AI-based forecasting optimization can incorporate these requirements and generate optimized participation strategies. There's other types of customers where it's not really about flexibility so much. They may or may not have flexibility, but for whom really like the renewable content that they're getting is a big corporate objective. And you know, traditionally, large companies have purchased renewable energy certificates, RECs, to reduce their carbon footprint, but RECs are doing consumption on an annual basis, matching the amount of energy that's produced from a renewable generator annually versus annual consumption. And at Creatomatic, we're using AI to provide time-matched carbon-free energy on an hourly basis for customers who are committed to decarbonizing their energy supply that way. Today, that's mostly a voluntary market. It's folks who are looking to be forward-looking in terms of their carbon emissions accounting. But we're starting to see things like, for example, the hydrogen production tax credit, where this time matching with carbon-free energy might be a more widespread requirement in the future. And so here, the AI-based forecasting is really critical to predict that production and the customer's energy usage to be able to optimize then any kind of storage or flexibility that the customer does have to match supply and demand to meet their carbon-free energy objectives. So how does the storage factor into all of this? Storage is really a, a ripe area for AI-based forecasting. It's the reason really is, is just the complexity of storage. When you, when you have a fossil fuel, you know, traditional power plant, it's already complex. You, you need to know your fuel cost, your, your heat rate, conversion efficiency, their operational constraints. And, and that's really how you determine how to participate and, and bid into an electricity market. So that's tricky as it is, but you know, with storage, it takes things to another level. The fuel of storage is electricity. And so every action, charge or discharge has an opportunity cost. And so to optimize a battery, you need to be constantly updating your forecasts of all these different things you could be doing throughout the day instead of the thing that you are doing. And on top of that, storage participates in electricity markets and different products. So there's a buying and selling of energy, but there's also ancillary services like providing frequency regulation and reserves. And so each of these different products has different pricing and operational dynamics, which can be complex. So staying within those operational constraints of the storage project is a challenge while trying to maximize revenue. And AI really excels at ingesting large amounts of data and it can predict optimal times to charge or discharge based on market signals. And so it, it can do these complex calculations you know, constantly in real time that would just like make an individual person's head explode when looking at one battery, let alone you know, a fleet of batteries. 
And so on the forecasting, given the fact that the forecast can change minute by minute, second by second, based on factors that, that are coming in, how far forward does the forecasting look? I mean, is this something that's just a few days because it's constantly changing? Is it longer, shorter than that? Yeah, so there's different time domains for storage. Specifically, a lot of the activity occurs in the day ahead market. In most ISOs, the majority or all of the ancillary services are procured in the day ahead market. And so that time frame of looking at the next day, which really to do that prediction, you're looking at more than 24 hours, you're looking at maybe up to 36, 48 hours in advance, is, is a critical thing for storage operations. And on top of that, a lot of storage systems have warranties that have maximums in terms of the usage of our day period. So that is a common look ahead window, and it's a really important window. And then obviously, as, as you move through the day, the shorter windows and, and updating that forecast over shorter time frames becomes important as well. Over the longer term, there is also important applications. If you're doing any kind of hedging or term trading in the market, that can take place over months or years. The forecasting techniques do differ a little bit. Weather becomes less of an important input factor, and you weight other variables more heavily, things like how the grid is going to be changing over time. But in general, Domains that are most important for storage optimization once it's been built are, are really these shorter term domains in the minutes to hours to days timeframe. Who's typically your major targeted client base? Is it going to be residential, commercial, industrial, grid operators? Is all the above? Yeah, I think for the technology at a high level, it has applications to all the above for Gridmatic. Specifically, we work with large commercial industrial customers and power producers. So on the storage side, what we're doing is we are contracting with storage owners to operate the batteries on their behalf, either as a service or as an offtake where we provide them revenue certainty, and then we participate and trade the batteries in the marketplace ourselves. And on the commercial industrial consumer side, we're providing them wholesale power services that are meeting their needs and potentially getting additional revenue through market participation. And so on the storage side, there's the two aspects. There's the one making sure that you have the appropriate storage and cost reduction in terms of timing for all that. But then you've also got the revenue opportunity uh, back into the grid as well to help maximize all that. So then on what you're doing, because you're looking at the optimization of a battery in terms of the storage and the optimal time uh, for release, there's also the revenue aspect of it. Is that typically what you're doing is you're trying to balance all those factors in terms of the optimal solution? Yeah, that's right. When we are looking at, at optimizing a battery, it's really you know maximizing the revenue battery subject to a whole bunch of different constraints. And some of those constraints are more tied to financial risk, but the most important ones are tied to really the physical operational constraints of the battery, right? We don't want to get into a situation where we've committed to do something for the grid and the battery can't deliver it. And so we can get it in a bad situation for that reason. So we have to make sure that there's uncertainty of what's going to happen. If we bid into a reserve service, it may or may not get called upon by the grid operator. And that call may require the battery to discharge a lot or a little bit. So we're looking at forecasting all of those things to look at lots of different scenarios of what may happen and generate optimized bids based on those scenarios. And I know you touched on it a little bit on the supply side, but more on that specifically, how are you working with some of the power producers and what their goals and, and trying to optimize their output? Yeah. So we're a consumer of power producers and, and we're turning around and then using that power and combining it to serve our customers who are the end users. And really, the work that we're doing is around the forecasting of the renewable supply and, and understanding how it's going to be used and when it's going to be available. And that forecasting is a big challenge. I mean, if we're looking at the day ahead time frame, which is where a lot of power plants get scheduled, and we talked about the importance for storage, the typical hourly forecast error for energy consumption at the grid level, so like, you know, what is California going to be consuming, that's on the order of 1% to 3% error. 
if you flip it and look at wind power forecasting, so what is the all of the wind production in the state going to be doing? That's closer to like 15% forecast error. And with individual plants, it's you know much larger error bands, but this is at the higher level. Solar is, is somewhere in between. Well, our, our nighttime forecasts are quite accurate, but in the daytime, it's somewhere in between. And with, with solar, you do get some surprising effects with cloud cover. And the, in addition, you know these resources are often far from consumers. And so the volatility and output of the renewables can create locational congestion on top of these system-wide power imbalances. And so what we're doing is with our forecasting, we're trying to predict when these plants will be available. And if they are going to be available, will there be congestion for being able to deliver the power to where we need it to go? And by doing so, you know, we, we can reduce our reliance on the peakers that are both expensive and, and don't meet our carbon objectives and are traditionally used to, to address supply shortfalls. So you were saying that the AI model that you have, that's within the 1% to 3% error based on your forecast? Yeah, those numbers are more kind of like state-of-the-art reference numbers. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's kind of where the industry is. And, and we're, you know, I think we're on the cutting edge of the industry, but that's roughly where things are. So I was going to ask about how you test the prediction. I mean, granted that it's always changing, but today your prediction may be 1% and then tomorrow, but it's evolved since you actually went back and tested it. So I'm just kind of curious is the margin of error on the calculations, particularly on that renewable supply, because obviously you're looking at weather patterns and, and look at that in terms of how much sun, the cloud cover, wind speeds, things like that. I was just curious, how do you go back and do kind of a QC check on what was ultimately the output of the AI? Yeah, I mean, this is really a big topic in AI generally is how do you view and, and verify what's happening. We've had to build a lot of software infrastructure at the company to do backtesting, basically. So, you know, every time we are looking at how a model is performing or how a particular change in an input might perform, we have to go back and look over long periods. And we have a, a framework in place where we can evaluate how we you know, would have performed with the forecast that we had available to us at the time over long periods of time. It's quite data intensive to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I can imagine it's intensive. I mean, because if it's continually changing based on multiple factors that come into the calculation, you almost have to pick, you know, a certain time every day to to check it because it may change five minutes after you pull the data with something that's constantly evolving. The computation themselves take time, right? So, you know, we're doing a lot of model work happens overnight to be ready for the forecasting that is ultimately what is going to go into the day ahead energy auction that happens in the morning for each of the markets. We participate in all seven of the U.S. ISOs, all the wholesale markets, and we're bidding into those markets every day on an automated algorithmic basis. And so we have models that are trying to get the latest and greatest information up until the point where the market closes and then bidding into those markets. And then we have further models that kick into effect once the dayhead market is settled and, and the real-time market is now operating throughout the day and, and continuously updating. But we want to make sure that we have the best forecasts and the best input data available to us at the time of the market closure for each of these things. And all the electricity markets vary a little bit with their timeframes of kind of how far ahead the market closes and, and when the bids need to go in. And so there's not clear standardization around that piece, which adds a little bit to the complexity as well. How are you finding receptivity within trading platforms to this? Yeah, I mean, it's a big change that's going on. And effectively, on the trading side, it's a challenging change for the industry. And that's part of why we've had to really eat our own dog food and become energy traders ourselves, which is what we do. So we have two funds of outside capital that support us in trading activities. And we use our own models to trade ourselves across all the ISOs. I mean, the visual I'd point to conceptually of what's going on is if you imagine the trading pit at the New York Stock Exchange looks completely different than when it did 
back in the day when folks were you know yelling out orders and coordinating with hand gestures on Wall Street, the, the quantitative trading has revolutionized finance and, and made that, those trading decisions based on, on math models and, and big data sets rather than human intuition. And I think the energy markets, they have experienced digitization, but the decision-making of many market participants still looks more like a manual trader. A lot of things are still done in spreadsheets, which you know can, can be effective for certain applications. But as, as we're seeing more and more variability and, and more complex technologies enter the marketplace, I think that the analogy is that the advanced quant high-frequency trader that have taken over Wall Street, that approach is, is needed in, in power markets as well. And I think our view is that really AI is the enabling technology with the forecasting that is going to allow that data-driven approach to really become the standard for trading in power markets. So on the grid optimization side and, and the energy efficiency of them, you're looking at on the demand side, people being more efficient, right? They're going at lower cost times to whether it's going to charge their EV or run their dishwasher. And then you've also got on the supply side, optimizing that so you don't have the grid congestion how much do you think you can alleviate from these grid congestions with the AI? Because you're going to be impacting both sides to really optimize the flow back and forth. That's really kind of the, the key overall challenge right now. As we build out more and more renewables, they're sited in locations where there's land and the renewable profile works. And so that's a fundamentally a different electricity grid than a grid that is designed with central generators that are located mostly close to where people live. So we expect you know more and more congestion to occur over time. And the only way that we're going to address this issue is, you know, one, by building more transmission lines, which is a very important thing that we need to be doing, but it's slow. And then two, by building, you know, more flexibility into what we do. And that flexibility could be storage resources that are sitting on both sides of congestion constraints or flexibility in our consumption. And I think, you know, both of those areas are areas where we expect big changes in the future and AI to make a big impact. In terms of the magnitude of how much that can happen, I, th I think it just it really depends on the, the pace of adoption of the different technologies. And so our, our focus is really making these storage and demand flexibility approaches as cost-effective as possible to get that deployment really running. We've talked a few times on the podcast with some grid enhancement technologies. So this really is just taking that and moving a step forward because you've got the, the software for energy management that can optimize usage and, and find the right prices. But what the AI aspect is doing is it's constantly evolving. It's constantly learning better predictive models to really help it advance that optimization of the grid as well as the energy management side. Yeah, that's right. The changing nature and the constantly updating nature of it is an important factor, right? The grid looks quite different each summer than it did the summer before. You have a market like Texas where there's been demand growth last three years uh, I think it averaged 8% per year the last three years. It's just been a, a huge amount of growth in, in consumption. At the same time, there's been you know big increases in the amount of solar penetration and, and to a lesser extent, you know, ba battery storage penetration. And so peak conditions last year, even if they look like the peak this year, it's a different grid. So being able to you know, update and understand what's going to happen is really important to be able to make the right decisions in, in a new, you know, new peak conditions, which each peak is, is something that never has exactly been seen before. And you mentioned more transmission lines, a couple other things. What else do you think needs to be invested in to help optimize the grid? I mean, where are some of the areas that are lacking that you really could see more investment coming that would make a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not saying this is like where the largest dollars need to go. But for our work, there could be not a huge amount of dollars that have a big impact around data transparency and reliability, particularly from the grid operators. It's hard to compare that with something like building a new transmission line, which is going to have a huge impact. But 
for us, I think that is really important and is a feasible thing for us to do. On the point of transparency, I mean, the most helpful thing that grid operators can do is provide transparent granular data. And in the U.S., all the independent system operators do this to some extent, but they do it a little differently, and the data that's available varies. As an example, you know, some grid operators are very transparent about how they use reserve services, and others provide like no detail at all. So if you want to participate in those services and provide a lower cost, enabling more stability in the grid, it's helpful to know what you're signing up for ahead of time. And that's just a big difference by market. The other part I mentioned was reliability. And, and this is especially important in real time where, where things are updating, as we talked about. Providing certainty in the information that's available in a timely fashion when you get to you know real-time data, it allows grid participants to be more agile based on current supply and demand grid conditions. Again, all grid operators do this to some extent, but some do it a lot better than others. And the systems they have vary in quality and certain grid operators consistently have issues with reliability of their systems. And so, you know, it's, it's less important that all the data looks the same format. We don't really need standardization so much. It's, it's more important that it's just as much data as possible is available and it's done so reliably. So I think that's one area where an investment could really help grid operators that are moving towards more automated systems. So moving over to the regulatory side, what do you think could be helpful from that standpoint to help really with the adoption of AI? Because I know that particularly as it relates to the grid. And it's so complicated. I mean, you talk to people that say that they've been in the grid business for 30 years, they still don't fully understand it. So it's very complex. And I know the regulatory system around it is as well. But you've got a lot of people in the queue for connection queues on this. Are you facing anything on the regulatory side that you think should be handled differently to help move this forward? Yeah, there are a lot of challenges with the queues and integrating large amounts of new resources. I, I don't know if I have any magic solutions for that other than investing a lot more resources in the power engineers that work on doing the queue studies. That seems like a very important thing that we need in this country right now. But I think one thing that we do see that would help in general getting the right resources in the right places is just more proliferation of nodal prices, particularly nodal prices for loads, right? So We've developed these markets, which not entirely, but mostly are, are nodal-based pricing where, say, a, a power plant, a, a solar farm that's out somewhere far in the desert will have a different locational price than a solar farm that's located next to a, a parking lot in a congested urban environment. And that's been a great thing for markets and efficiency in, in terms of getting the right generation in the right location. But we're totally missing it right now on the load side. Right now, consumers generally pay the same price regardless of the location or at least within big locational zones. And so there have been some efforts, certain programs like Controllable Load Resource Program and ERCOT, but those are really nascent and not well adopted. I think moving towards a regulatory environment where loads also are consuming power associated at locational marginal prices can really help impact some of that congestion that we're seeing. Because, you know, a lot of times we're saying, okay, we have all these resources out in the desert, but no power lines to bring them to load centers. Well, I mean, if maybe we can co-locate some of the things that are energy intensive to where those resources exist and do things that way. But the only way that we'll have the right incentives in place to bring our power consumption to where the generation exists is if we have uh, locational prices. So that would be one regulatory advance that we don't really see too much of happening that, you know, I think we at Gridmatic would like to promote across markets. So we've talked about supply, demand, and grid side for your AI technology and how it can enhance the energy efficiency and reduce the congestion on the grid. Are there any other areas, particularly within energy, where you think that this would be applicable to really help with the energy transition? Yeah, one thing that we didn't talk about so much is what happens over different time domains. We talked mostly about short-term forecasting, the day-ahead time frame window, but there are a lot of decisions that need to be made over longer time horizons. 
And so we're spending a lot of research right now in how to apply the technology over long time domains. There are particular markets like uh, congestion markets that operate over monthly or annual timeframes. And these are really critical for renewable generators that are looking to lock in the risk that they have of the congestion between where they're producing and where the consumption of the power or where their, their, their contracts are settling. And so these are markets that are also really important to get right and price correctly because that will lead to the right siting and placement of renewable supply. So that's an area that you know we see as critical and it is something that we're focused on right now in building out kind of the longer term forecasting component of our modeling. So that'll help with the project management as well as investment decisions going forward. Exactly. And how have you found the investment climate, particularly for Gridmatic, but maybe even broadly speaking to other similar technologies within the space? Is there a lot of investment dollars that are out there looking to invest in this type of technology? AI at a high level is a very buzzy term. And so a lot of venture capitalists you know, have theses around uh, the development of AI. For us in particular, it's, it's a little bit more of a complicated story because our business model is as a power marketer. So we're a direct market participant and our revenues come from you know, the way we participate in the marketplace, not from recurring software license sales, which is a traditional model for venture capitalists. And so actually the, the folks that we've worked with, the funds that we've raised have come more from the energy world, power trading or traditional infrastructure a commodity investing world and are seeing really the application of AI to the types of approaches that have worked traditionally in power markets. So it's, it's been interesting from that perspective that the way the investment climate has shaped up for us specifically. I think if our model looked a little differently, if, if we were kind of more of a SaaS uh, software company, then I think the venture capital model would, would be very appropriate for what we're doing. But it, our approach is more of an energy-focused approach. Now looking forward, it's obviously difficult to predict, but what are your thoughts on how the grid looks like in the next, call it 20 years, realizing that, yes, the technology is going to develop and there's a lot more about energy efficiency. And, and I think there's also more interest at the consumer level to focus on energy efficiency. One is they want to be part of the energy transition. Two, it's obviously a cost exercise for them as well. So that there's two factors playing into that. And also you've got the grid that changes tend to move very slow, like we've just talked about. But looking forward in the broad scheme of the energy transition, where do you think the grid sits in terms of advancement over the next 20 years? In the near term, what we're seeing is the work that Gridmatic is doing now, which is applying these automated AI-based systems to the resources that are that are being in the marketplace, like a lot of storage that's being deployed today. And there's somewhat of a debate today, a little bit around more manual versus more automated uh, trading approaches. And there's a spectrum there. It's not totally either or, but I, I think basically in the next maybe five to 10 years, we're just going to see just a high level of automation that's going to roll out and be successful based on AI models. And probably by, you know, by 2030, AI for storage operations and wholesale markets will be table stakes. Everyone will have to be doing some version of this approach. In the longer term, maybe more like, you know, the 20 years or, or even longer, I think we'll see more aspects of the energy supply chain from generation to consumption that will be AI optimized. I think that'll be especially more evident on the consumption side, the demand side than it is today. I think, you know, really we'll see this load flexibility develop mostly along specific sector verticals. And for, for us, uh, you know, I think EV charging, hydrogen electrolysis, data center operations, these are prime targets for new load growth areas that are going to have flexibility built into what they're doing. Because 20 years from now, the grid will be multiples larger than it is today, hopefully, as we move to electrify more of the industries and activities that we do. 
And so the optimization from this responsive consumption will really be critical in enabling that grid growth and enabling really more of a, a low carbon-based grid. And how can this help address extreme weather events? Yeah, I mean, extreme weather events that we've never seen before are really hard to predict with any modeling approach, whether that involves AI or not. But I think AI tends to see better correlations across time and space. And that's important with extreme weather events. When you have a grid with a diverse set of resources, you have fossil fuel-based plants, renewable resources, storage. You know, each component has different sensitivity to weather. So if we take a situation, if we're looking at the, the middle of the country, say, the wind belt, and there may be a hot period and there's some stress on grid infrastructure from the heat and then a thunderstorm front comes through, the storm is going to reduce the solar production in some areas if they're solar, which could be critical production during peak period. But the storm might also cool down temperatures, which could reduce demand from consumers, like air conditioning demand. Or it might not reduce the load much at all if the storm is localized and it kind of misses those major population centers covering other areas where maybe some of the renewables are located. So that's all kind of complicated. And then the effect on wind production could be complicated. It could boost the wind speeds or potentially cause them to shut down. And so the question is, you know, during a storm like that, are we going to have scarcity of electricity or resources? Are we going to have plenty of power? It could really go in different directions. And it's, it's quite complicated, and we want to figure it out so that we don't end up in that scarcity case. And so we price signals correctly so that the right resources come on and produce. And so what we have found is that by looking at correlations between how all these different things are going to respond to an extreme weather event, AI can make better predictions and learn from previous events to make the grid more resilient during these extreme weather events. Well, David, listen, I appreciate you joining us on The Interchange today. Great discussion and obviously a very relevant topic that is hitting headlines daily now. AI, its development and regulation. So appreciate the discussion. Thanks for having me. Enjoy being here. I'm David Ban Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy. Hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers-Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. Join the Energy Gang conversation, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.